everyone. Welcome to the Trail Life Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stoner. Thank you for joining me on yet another trail journey. And uh, I have got an amazing, amazing guest today. So great that uh, I decided for the first time ever I would bring in a co-host to help me out with this conversation. He's practically lives on this podcast anyway, so I feel he was probably the best choice. Uh, he's a friend. He's a San Diego ultra running legend. Hector Rodriguez, welcome. Thanks for uh, joining me as a co-host, man. Man, thanks for asking me. And I am just as pumped as you to talk to the GOAT, even though he hates when I say that. Uh, my belief is... My man is the GOAT in the 200s, Mike McKnight. Yeah, man. Uh, personally, I, I'm really looking forward to hearing the conversation between you two, really, and how, how it is. Because you guys are friends, you're, you're competitors, but he's also your coach, too. So I, I'm really looking forward to, to hearing those conversations. So let's just jump right into it. This is Mike McKnight. Well, help me turn the turn in. Let me get it right. I don't wanna hurt nobody. Well, I don't wanna fight. Well, offer me the peace of mind and let me. I might leave this conversation if there's no more goat references, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should I should say Hector was telling me this too that uh, you're probably one of the most humble people that he's ever met as well. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> as you and I were kind of talking previously, Mike, like, this is the first time that you and I have met one another. So again, I appreciate you jumping on and uh, doing this podcast. I know you you've got your own podcast and you've got uh, some other podcasts you always do. So taking time for for my small little trail community um, is really appreciative. So thank you. Yeah, of course. You know, I biggest thing when Hector and I kind of started talking about this opportunity is one of the first things I want to hear is how you guys got connected. Like, how did you meet Hector or Hector meet you? What's how that relationship start? So I was I was the aid station captain at What's it? What was it called, Hector? It's mile seventy. I'm with you. I don't remember the name, but it's the mile seventy-two-ish aid station in Moab. It's like yeah. the first time you can pick up pacers. Yeah, I, and I think it's changed its name two or three times too, so that probably plays a little bit into it. But um, it was 2020. I was volunteering at that aid station, and then Hector came in. Um, I want to say like eleven or so. Does that sound about right? It was dark. Yeah, it was definitely dark. Uh, Definitely dark. So, yeah, he came in with this crew, and um, I was helping them out a little bit, and I didn't know that Hector knew who I was. Um, I was helping them out for like a minute or so before I knew that he knew who I was, but um, his crew was trying to figure out if he should stay there and sleep, basically see what he wanted to do, and then he said that he's going to go through the whole night and then referenced me and said, I'm going to go through the whole night like this guy, and that's (laughs) that's when I... Realized he knew who I was and so <laughs> a little bit about it. And I think I gave him some advice on what to do, see how he was feeling and um, basically told him to keep, I, I think I told you to keep going through the night. And then he reached out to me about a month later, seeing if I wanted to coach him for the triple crown the following year, this year. And um, that's kind of where we started talking a lot more was, was about exactly a year ago from today. Yeah. And, and what I'll add to that, Jeff is, Earlier in that year, um, and I don't think I've shared this with Mike, um, there was this lady that knew of me and knew Mike. Her name is Lucy. And she had met Mike 
um, I think maybe the day before the Colorado trail attempt. So I don't know what month exactly you did that, Mike. The through hike. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know what she was doing there, but literally she was like, you have to follow this guy. He is going for the Colorado trail FKT. I met him. He was the nicest guy in the world. You know, I took a picture with him. And so I was like, I looked into what the, that FKT was. And I was like, Oh, this is awesome. This is definitely the type of person that I'm, I'm going to love. I followed Mike and was tracking that FKT journey. And then my brother, who's also into ultra running, uh, I told him about it. And I think we started watching some YouTube clips and got more context onto different challenges or adventures or races that Mike had did. And we were like, oh, this is awesome. So with all of that, I think in Moab, somebody had said that Mike, was uh captaining one of the aid stations so i didn't i don't know if i remember which one but i know at mile 72 i was just stoked because i did get the opportunity to finally get to my crew and have a pacer and then boom i seen mike there who i had been you know kind of following along and i could just basically validate everything that Lucy had told to me because I was like man like uh, I'm not sleeping I'm doing trail naps like you let's go <laughs> and I think I probably even asked for a picture and and everything that Lucy said of him just being like super awesome super friendly just super stoked to be out there because it probably was like two or three in the morning maybe and he was the first person to greet me in the whole aid station so it was just awesome to get to meet him in person and then like mike said uh i remember uh i, I was starting to follow him on instagram and i started watching the stories and i had seen that he had an opportunity uh he had a slot open up for coaching and i knew after moab 240 how much i loved it that i wanted to go do the triple crown and i felt that there couldn't be a better person to guide me through that with as much experience as him so i literally messaged him on instagram and he was like heck yeah dude i remember you would love to help and like from then on like i think our conversations organically just talked just like friends and and felt like that vibe and that connection to where we just got along great and you know he he definitely helped me and and we progressed through you know through a coach athlete relationship and as as two buddies i was going to quickly add to that usually like i do 30 minute coaching calls with people i coach but pretty quickly our conversations usually ended up being like an hour or something like that whenever we met. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's a Hector thing because every time I, I start talking to Hector, I, I feel like I'm going to be on there for two minutes. And then next thing I know, it's like a 45 minute conversation. And I'm like, where the hell does time just go? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, guys, man. I have so much fun with both of you guys, man. Can't help it. Hey, it's all good, man. No worries. How did you get started in trail running? What was what was the decision to make the trails your home? Yeah, so I I never know how much to share. Cause I feel like I've shared this story a lot and I don't want to like bore everybody. Yeah, you could tell as much as you want, man. That's cool. Well, I think I have a pretty good condensed version now that um, kind of shares where I, where I got into it. But so I grew up, I grew up overweight. I, I didn't care about running or anything. Um, I started running just to lose weight about in junior high, lost that weight and then stopped running after that. Um, Cause you know, it was kind of something I associated with, as a negative thing, like I had to do it to lose weight. So I didn't care to do it anymore. 
Um, and then about when I turned 21, I started to run just to get back into shape. Uh, I didn't really gain the weight back, but like I, I definitely had some weight I could still lose at that point. And I found that um, like, so I, I remember I went and like decided to bust out a mile to see how fast I could do it. And I did it in 454. And to me, that was like, holy cow. Like, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Maybe if, I, maybe if I actually train and made this a priority, maybe I can like be good at this. And so I made it a goal to walk onto the track team at the college that I was attending and hopefully to get a scholarship and pay for my college. So I use that as a motivating factor to start training a lot more. And then approximately six or so months later, I broke my back in a skiing accident. I got a surgery the next day. Doctor told me that I would be in bed for months, that I shouldn't think about running again for another year or so. And this was in February of 2012. So I incompleted my college classes for a year, which meant I just deferred them for, for the following, like basically exactly a year after that. Uh, I had a, a new job that I started like a week or so before, which I ended up losing when they heard that I would be out of bed for, or sorry, out of commission and in bed for a long time. And long story short, I, about six weeks after, no, sorry, I guess it would have been more like three or four weeks after my surgery. Uh, I decided to try and run a little bit and see how it felt. And I guess we should take a back step. Part of my therapy, the doctor said just to go walk a mile every day. And so before that three weeks, I, I was walking a mile a day. And then I like started walking two miles a day, three miles a day, just like kind of pushing it a little bit since I had nothing to do and it didn't hurt more. And so by the time I got to three, three and a half weeks, I was walking about six miles a day. And I was like, okay, it, like it doesn't hurt to walk this much. So maybe I can run a little bit and it's not going to hurt much. So I did a, a half mile run and didn't hurt any worse. So I just kind of started like in the same fashion, progressing a little bit more each day to see if it ever like hurt my back. Uh, and then before I knew it, about two months or so after my surgery, I, I ran a 10K. I signed up for a 10K and ran a 10K. Um, same thing, didn't hurt much. So by about four or five months after my surgery, like I took my brace off and I was running 10 plus miles a day because uh, I had nothing else to do. Like all my friends were in college still. I lost my job. I wasn't in college. So I like, I literally had nothing to do. So I just ran for a couple hours a day, went to the gym for a couple hours a day through all of that. Like I was, I was doing road running and I finally got a new job and somehow like I knew somebody that connected me with a runner at the company. Like when he, like he knew that I was running a lot. And so I was like, Hey, there's a runner here. You should meet him. Maybe you guys can run together. And so I met him and like, you know, I had, I had no idea what trail running was. I had like, to me, it was, you run on the road and you hike on the trails. Like I didn't know that people did. Yeah. Both. <laughs> and I also know what ultra running was at the time. And so I finally, so I got introduced to this guy um, I, I asked him, there's like a local 5k that weekend. And I asked him if he was going to do it. And he told me, and this wasn't like, he wasn't cocky about it, but he just said like, it's like, nah, typically I don't, I don't do races that are under a marathon. And to me, I didn't know there were races that existed over a marathon. Yeah. <laughs> and so he, he told me he was like training for 
like the following week, he was doing a 50 mile race in Pocatello, like a, a small town close to where I live, told me it was through the mountains. And he uh, kept trying to to invite me on trail runs with him. And I kept declining because he, he intimidated <laughs> me. <laughs> um, but finally, it took a few weeks. I finally accepted the invite and joined him on a trail run. And oh my gosh, it was just like a night and day difference on how much funner it was. Like the views, the the challenge of running up a mountain versus on a flat road. And I just like kind of fell in love with it and asked him what race he recommended I should sign up for for my first ultra and trained for it and just you know just kind of fell right in love with it and have been doing it ever since. Man, how and what what year was how long ago was this? So broke my back in 2012, did my first ultra uh, almost it was in 2013. It was just like a little bit over a year after. So basically when the doctor wanted me to start running again is when I did my first ultra, which is pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, which I think is why it makes him the goat, right Hector? Just oh. jumps right into that. Hi. <laughs> 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 well, you know, a lot of people can't just jump right into an ultra. So for for you to look at it as okay, I'm just gonna you know I'm skip the skip the 5k, skip the 10k, skip the skip the full marathon. I'm just, I'm just gonna do a you know, a full ultra. So the ultra you ended up doing the first one was a what 50k, 50 miler. Yeah, I mean, so it falls into that gray area where some like the serious runners don't call it an ultra because it wasn't a 50k, yeah. but. I fall in the category of if it's longer than a marathon, it's an ultra. So it was, it was like a 28 and a half miler. I don't know if you've been to my, my neck of the woods, Northern Utah, but we have a mountain peak called here or a mountain peak here called Mount Logan. It's pretty tall up there. And like, I had never been to it in my entire life. And this ultra like goes up to that mountain peak and it kind of does like a lollipop around it and stuff. So like it was, it was only 28 milers. 28 miles but like the fact that you know that peak was at it's, it's at 9700 feet in our valley like where we live is about 4500 feet so like it was definitely it, it's a hilly it's a hilly race so it's very it was very intimidating for me for sure so i'm curious skip over uh, uh some of the smaller distances and you go straight for an ultra at some point you jumped into the 200s and at least since I've known you, I feel like you've done more 200s than any other distance. And if that's the case, uh, or at least close to it, I, I'm curious to know what about like the multi-day races attracts you versus doing 100 milers or other distances. So I think I have done more 100s than 200s, but it's definitely getting close to evening out. Man, I, I like the, the multi-day stuff for a few reasons. Um, I like the strategy involved. It's a, it's a lot more than just running. Like you really got to figure out your nutrition. You got to figure out how to run when you're really tired. You got to plan for different days of weather, as you know, Hector. Um, I just I just like all the strategy that's involved in the 200. And then, um, man, like to be honest, like I'm not I'm not fast. And then also with that, and I. Like, I know it seems silly because obviously if you're doing a 200, you're trying to push yourself and get uncomfortable, but 50 Ks, especially 50 Ks, they're too uncomfortable for me. <laughs> I, I hate 
I hate the, the high heart rate. I hate like trying to feel like I'm trying to get air for four to five hours. Like I would much rather just go out for a couple of days at a lower heart rate and just try to maintain a consistent, easier pace than go like bust it out for four to five hours. So, and then just too, I've seen success with it. So obviously like, I'm going to feel like I'm going to gravitate towards that and try to keep seeing success with that and keep seeing if I can improve with it as well. What I think is interesting is that, you know, the 50K, you know, the higher heart rate is kind of not like a turn on for you. But I recall pacing with you in Cocodona. I believe it was the whole first night. And the entire night I was basically running alongside Mike. And it was just like, it felt like every time I was looking at my watch, we were just hitting like consistently 12 minute miles. But... It was for like six, seven, eight hours straight. And, and like, I know when I do my 200s, definitely in the night, probably way more walking, like 80% walking and maybe 20% running with you. I think it was like maybe almost 100% running, except for maybe if it was a steep section. Is that not like difficult to kind of maintain that like 12 minute mile just all night long i mean it's i get sore like i'm not saying i don't get sore but i don't feel like it's i don't feel like it's too difficult <laughs> like Dang, that's it's, amazing that's amazing it's a lot, it's a lot easier to do that for me <laughs> to, go, to go maintain six to seven minute pace at a 50k for four hours that's for sure <laughs> like the stuff that like hayden hawks is doing like jim walmsley like that stuff blows my mind like i i could never do that <laughs> Maybe I could one day if I like I made it a priority, but I don't have any interest to make it a priority. So I'm I'm interested and Hector and I have had these conversations before when he's he's been on and we've talked about Moab and Bigfoot. I love the fact that you said it's strategy with it, right? Because the multi-day races are just that. It is a strategy. You don't, as you said, you're not not the fastest runner, but you don't need to be the fastest runner. It's all about when to push yourself, when to back it off, when to rest, when everything else. So one of the things that uh, I, I want to hear a little bit more about here in a second, but you're also, your handle on social media is the low carb runner. <laughs> Right. So how does your nutrition play into the, the strategy of those multi-day events? Does Have you noticed anything uh, when you're on, on a very low calorie or low carb to something where maybe you're you're not, you're taking in a little bit more carbs? How does that strategy change? Yeah. So this is a dangerous question because I can geek out on this stuff for a long time. <laughs> That's why we ask, man. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I mean... So theoretically, like a low carb approach is, doesn't make too much sense for the shorter distances. Like I, I coach, I'm starting to coach more like shorter distance people. And a lot of them inquire about a low carb approach. And usually I, I don't want to say I talk them out of it, but like I give them reasons to like, just to evaluate on if it's going to work out for them or not with what their goals are for racing. And I honestly if I was doing five K's and 10 K's, who knows if I'd be eating this way, I doubt it. Uh, just because that short of a distance, like you're not going to burn through your glucose. Uh, whereas like a 200 mile race, like, so basically like the longer the distance, the more low carb approach makes sense. Uh, just because your heart rate is going to be a lot lower for like, like, as I was, I was saying five minutes ago, my heart rate is a lot lower for a 200 than it is for a 50 K even. And so the lower your heart rate, the more fat you're going to be burning versus glucose. 
Whereas the higher heart rate you're, you're going to have, you're going to cross that uh, aerobic and anaerobic threshold. And once you go anaerobic, which a lot of people do for their shorter races, they're going to be burning more glucose, uh, basically hundred percent glucose. And so like with a 200 mile race, um, I mean, I don't eat a lot of carbs for it just because the intensity is so much lower. Uh, I, I, I firmly believe that the, the low carb approach is what helps me like do fairly well at these races, uh, just because, you know, like Hector was saying, like during that night section that he ran with me and we were hitting 12 minutes pretty consistently, like your fat storage is just so large that if you are an efficient fat burner, then you can like maintain that nice consistent pace for a long time and not have any energy dips. So like, if you can figure out how to reduce your chance of injury and like, like I do strength training every week, I do mobility exercises. So like I work on those things to make sure that my body doesn't break down physically in these races. So like, if you can figure that out and your body does hold strong, like the next thing to figure out is the consistency and not losing energy. So like if you, if you can tap into that fat storage and be efficient at burning it, like you can just maintain that nice steady pace for a very long time. Um, which is, which is why I, I think that this approach makes the most sense for 200 mile races for sure. So Mike, I, I saw on your Instagram, uh, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but definitely very recently, you announced that you will be at across the years doing a 24 hour attempt with zero calories. And then I also, I think I saw follow-up posts where your strategy is a lot of fasting um, and, and some morning workouts. So do you think your fat adaption allows you to like tap into that fat storage to where you can literally do hundred mile races with no calories. Yeah. I mean, you, you, so I, I say that like, I see, so ever since doing that, that zero, so I, a year ago I did the zero calorie 100. Um, and ever since doing that, like I've seen a lot of people like in trail and ultra trail and ultra running groups and Facebook, like a lot of people ask questions about how low calorie you can eat when you run. And usually somebody will tag me in that. Like I read through all the comments, like I hate being brought into these conversations. <laughs> but I mean, so like it's from my experience, like I've learned that it's possible, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's optimal. So like, I'm not, mm -hmm. not trying to like, so like this across the years thing I'm doing, I'm not going there to like actually race. I'm not going to try to win it or anything. Um, I'm just going there to get some data and see what's happening with my blood glucose, my ketones. I'm going to do blood work before and after. So I just want to do it to see what is actually happening because um, I'm just curious about it. When I did that zero calorie 100 a year ago, uh, the thing that I noticed was around mile 60 to 70, which is usually like in a hundred mile race. That's usually when I try to pick it up and finish strong. Uh, I just noticed I couldn't pick it up. I couldn't like take it up a notch. I was just kind of stuck in that, that gear, that like fat burning gear. So, so like optimally it's not smart to go zero calories for a whole race, especially if you want to perform. So, yeah, so I definitely feel that like doing these fasted runs is making me more efficient at fat burning, but the approach that I take, so like, you know, Hector, I don't do like a strict keto approach. Like I do strategic keto. And the point of that is I'm just trying to teach my body to be efficient at burning fat and glucose versus just one. 
And so like definitely these zero calorie runs are helping me be more efficient at fat burning, but I do like to, to like take in glucose when I'm running as well, just to make sure I'm efficient at being both. So that way I can have that, that, that next gear when I want to use it. So is your motivation on this, this across the years attempt um, just to kind of collect like science or data on yourself? Mostly. Yeah. But like, I always have this small goal in my head that I would like, like to achieve as well. And, you know, for me, that would be to get like a 24 hour best. I've only done one 24 hour race before. And like, I think it went decent for my first 24 hour. And especially since I didn't really train that much for it. So I think it'd be cool to get that data, but also get my 24 hour best at the same time. Which is, or would be, I would have to get 127 to get my best. Like, I think it's possible. I, <laughs> I mean, that shit. 100 miler I did last year, <laughs> the zero calorie 100, like I did that in 18 and a half hours and it had 5,000 feet of gain and this race is flat. So in my head, I think like five-ish hours is plenty of time to get another marathon under my belt, assuming like, you know, that's going to be unknown territory once I get past that 18 and a half hours. Like I've never ran that far on zero calories before. So who knows, like it could be an hour later, I just lose all of it and just can't run anymore. So who knows what happens? Do you think, uh, so from the zero calorie perspective, is this something, if it works out for you physically, is this something that you would tap into moving forward in your races and try and do zero calorie or that's not really a maintainable option for the, the you know, doing these 200s all the time? No, I would, I would never try it during an actual race that I want to like win or set a record at or anything. Okay. Um, the only thing that I think is cool with it, like one, I've had a lot of people reach out to me since the last one that I did is saying like, thank you. I, I struggle with digesting food and everybody tells me like, figure it out, but keep eating food. Like fasting while you're running is bad. And like, there's a lot more people like once they saw my experience that have been experimenting with fasting a little bit and finding out that they can maintain a good pace and like their stomach issues are starting to go away because you're not eating, then like there's a lot less chances of having digestive issues. So like, it's definitely, I've seen it helping a lot of people like, like come and approach fasting strategically and seeing how it'll help them. And then, uh, two, the other thing too, is that just when I, when I started doing a low carb approach, like one of the the things that is pretty well known is that you can eat less per hour and still have a maintainable pace. Like if, if you're, if your average high carb athlete is having three to 400 calories per hour, then like a low carb athlete is probably having like 150 to 200 per hour. Um, so before I did this attempt, I like, I would look down at my watch and be like, Oh crap, it's been an hour and 20 minutes since I've eaten. Like I might've felt fine, but I would force myself to eat just because like, that's the rule. You should try to eat every hour. And so the only thing that this thing has done for me is like giving me the confidence to just like truly eat by how I feel. And so not try to like hit a certain number every hour, but just like keep running. And if I feel like I need a little bit of a boost, then pull out some food and eat it and let it give me that boost versus like trying to stick to some regiment throughout the whole race. I, I want to go back to some of the other strategy aspects of it, um, because I'd love to hear, hearing a lot of stories about Moab you know, through Hector and, you know, Bigfoot and stuff. And, and I always love seeing pictures of the trail naps, you know, to, you know, taking those 15, 20 minute trail naps and stuff, you know, how does, how does other, like, what, have, what are some of your other strategies that you look into and what are some of those things that you've maybe, you know, done on your first 200 that kind of formed the way you 
look at your strategy now. Was there something that you looked at? You're like, okay, I can definitely not do this anymore. And this is the way I need to approach this. I mean, I, I'm quite curious as to that because again, it's the strategy aspect of the 200s is amazing to me. I, I love that. I love that whole entire perspective. Yes. I'll say this, Jeff. I think the 15, 20 minutes is me. I think Mike is probably like half that or even less than that. <laughs> it was wild how fast he can recharge himself. Um, actually, at Moab, I had to take 30 minutes of naps. So uh, I guess I'm getting older. Who knows? <laughs> um, but yeah, so the, like, the biggest thing I say to people, um, which can be hard as a coach, just because like, like really everybody is so individualistic with these races. Like, mm, yeah. you know, for me, 15 to 30 minutes of napping works. Whereas like the majority of the other people, um, the majority of the other races needs like an hour at least to a few hours. And so like when I started the two, like my first 200, like I had planned sleep stations and that just didn't work for me because I would go there. I'd, like get in the back of my truck and lay down to take a nap. And like, I'd be laying there for 20 minutes and just like not tired. And I was just like, well, shoot, should I like keep trying to lay here and fall asleep and like get five minutes if I'm lucky or should I just get out and keep going? Mm -hmm. So for me, like the sleep station strategy didn't work. Like I just basically, I have to go until like I'm starting to fall asleep and then lay down and sleep wherever that is. Whereas some people like it works to have sleep stations. So like there's definitely some experimentation involved with these races, which is what I like so much about them. Yeah. Um, like my buddy, Ben light, he, like he can do an hour and a half to two hours each night of a 200 and he needs that. And he can like hop in the car and fall asleep within a minute and he's good to go. Sleep strategy. Like it's changed a little bit for me. I, this isn't something that I recommend to most people either. Like I, I feel like half the stuff I do isn't something I usually recommend. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I, I hope that's not taken poorly. Like, I'm <laughs> but like the other, thing, as I say, not as I do, right. Is that the old yeah. saying? <laughs> like the biggest, so in 2017, my first 200, um, I guess my first 200s, cause I did the triple crown as well. I, I, I did a lot of planning, like printed out this 10 page document that had like tons of notes like I did 10 drop bags, like full of just so much random crap. It was very stressful for me. Like I wasted like a lot of sleep those nights when I was packing and planning and strategizing. And like, I come to find out that each of those races, like one, like I got to the aid stations at different times than I was guessing. So I didn't end up using half the stuff in my drop bag. Um, it just ended up seeming like it was a big waste of time to do all that. So now, you know, I, as I was saying earlier, like, I don't even know the names of the aid stations. Um, I don't, I don't know how far apart they are from each other. Like I, I don't do any planning anymore. Like I just, I show up, I run to the aid station. I ask the, the captain how far it is to the next aid station. They tell me I grab how much gear I think I might need for that section and then just head out and just deal with it. So like for me, the less planning I do, the better I do which is not the case for a lot of people I've, I, I know, <laughs> but, but me just eliminating that stress and just kind of running by how I feel has really helped me out quite a bit. And then too, like the, the other, I guess there's two more things, like <clears throat> the amount of strength training I do in preparation for a 200 has increased quite a bit. Um, I used to not strength train at all, but I've just learned that, you know, two plus days of running, like 
it wears your body down quite a bit. And if you're not working on those different muscles that you don't exercise, like when you strictly run, like your chances of breaking down goes up quite a bit over that span of time. So the strength training I've done has increased as I've done more two hundreds and like, you know, I feel like it's working because I, I rarely have issues anymore with my body breaking down <clears throat> where I used to have a lot of issues. And then the other thing too, is like my strategy with eating has changed around these weight races as well. Every 200 that I've done, I've been low carb, but I, I used to not be as strict with it. My first three 200s, like I was low carb, but I, I would spend like four days after each race eating a ton of junk. It's kind of like my reward. Um, like I'd be in the middle of the race, like, and I was like wanting to quit and I'd be like, well, if you don't quit, you can have a big old bowl of ice cream, a basket of French fries, just like get through this and you can reward yourself. And so like, I would do that. And like, I have pictures I can show you. My legs were just like so fat after those races because of like how much swelling was going on. Yeah. And as I've studied this approach more, I've just learned that like, that's kind of the backwards way to do it. Um, because the point of this diet is to reduce your chances of inflammation. And so like by finishing that race and eating high inflammatory causing foods, like that was just like slowing my recovery down. I was feeling terrible. I had a hard time running in between each race. Whereas now it's like, I kind of do it backwards. Like I try not to be super strict about things where I, I, I I still do believe in rewarding myself in certain ways. So like after Moab, I, I did have some French fries. I had a cookie even. I, I did it in reverse. So as soon as the race was over, I was strict for a few days to cut down on that inflammation and let my body repair itself. And as soon as like I felt like I was somewhat repaired, that's when I like started treating myself a little bit and and rewarding myself for getting through that. So so my strategy with with eating has changed a little bit to help speed up my recovery. I'm curious on how many. Like, I know what you plan for me, but I'm curious to how many days or hours a week are you doing your strength training and what kind of volume in miles or hours are you doing on your, on your run for your training plans? It's very similar to yours. Um, <clears throat> I don't believe that you need to go much higher than like what you and I were doing. Uh, there were people I coached for the triple crown that's doing less than what we were doing, but that's just because like <clears throat> I build people's plans off of what their base was currently. And so there's some people that just came to me and their base was quite a bit lower. And if I tried to get them to the volume that we were doing before the race, then their chances of injury would be quite a bit higher. So there were people that were doing less, but in terms of like the max, like what you saw with your plan, that's typically what I max out on throughout the year. To be honestly, you probably did more than me, but that's because that's what you chose to do. <laughs> uh, the thing that Hector knows is I would schedule him to do certain things and he would always end up going above and beyond and doing quite a bit more. But... Anybody who knows Hector, that's pretty much the case, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, like I strength train. My Achilles heel. <laughs> but yeah, I strength train three days a week and that's the most I'll ever give to somebody that I'm coaching. Um, I run six days a week and that's the most I'll ever give to somebody I'm coaching. And typically it's like an hour and a half to two hours a day, not including my long run. And then long run is anywhere from two and a half to five hours. 
And that's typically the most volume that I'll ever put into to my plan and anybody's plan. Well, it's it's amazing. Like I, the the amount of trail runners that I talk to that don't do any kind of strength training or very minimal, right? Or don't do, and maybe they do mobility, but they don't do strength training or vice versa. And it's, it's kind of one of those things. It's always great to hear that more and more runners out there that are starting to like preach it like hey you guys need to be doing these this type of strength training you need need to be you know mobilizing and stuff it's i think it just kind of gets lost in the in the runner mindset i think to some degree yeah until you like experience injury and need it like it's hard to want to do it i mean the mentality i used to always have was like strength training that's stupid like if I could be doing an hour and a half of running and 30 minutes of strength training, I'd rather just go run for two hours and work on my running. So it's like easy to have that mentality, like where whatever time you could be putting into strength training, you could put into running. Like eventually your body is going to break down. And like the, the best way to deal with that is to start doing strength and mobility exercises. So fortunately more and more people are like trusting that it is needed and they're trying it out and but there's a lot of people that just get injured and they're kind of forced into needing to try it. And once mm-hmm. they see that it helps them, they start becoming a believer in it and start doing it more often. What, uh, what's one of your, out of any rate, it doesn't really matter which, which race you, you, we're looking at here, 200s or anything below that. What's one of your favorite memories that you'll take away from any of your races? Man, that's a really hard question. There's a lot wow. of those moments. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of those moments. Um, I think like, I think this is probably a collection of moments, but it's like the same moment that's happened multiple times. But for me, it's just seeing, and it has nothing to do with me, but more to do with my crew, um, my wife in particular, just seeing how dedicated she is to helping me succeed has been truly like awesome. And the time that like it really stuck out to me the most was when I was doing the Bigfoot 200 in 2017. It was my first 200. We had our firstborn child um, four months earlier. And at the time we were like pretty strapped for cash. We had like an old 1995 Camry. Um, And we also had a RAV4, a Toyota RAV4. I remember like, as we were talking about Bigfoot, like I was reading through all the manuals and it was like saying how there's a lot of rough roads and four wheel drive is recommended, but me being me being so strapped for cash, I was like, it's going to save us a lot of money if we take that Camry versus take <laughs> <laughs> so, 2017 Bigfoot. Like I'm curious to know what Hector's crew would think of this since they've been to all the cruise spots, but like, you know, my wife went to all the cruise spots in a little dinky Camry and she lived out of that car with our baby through that whole experience. It, it took me almost 72 hours that first time. And I remember it was, um, it was like mile 75 or so of Bigfoot. Um, I showed up earlier than I had planned and I couldn't find Sarah anywhere. And so I found our Camry and I walked over and like kind of peeked in and like she was in the front seat, it was folded down and she was like curled up into a ball in the front seat. And then our son, she made this like little bed on the floor below the front seat that he was sleeping on. And so just kind of like seeing that image of her curled up in a ball in the chair and him sleeping on the, the floor next to the gas pedal of the car really like made me realize how much our crew goes through for us to see us succeed. So just like seeing how much like 
she's caught the bug and all the sacrifice that she's made to to accommodate this crazy sport that I like has been really inspiring to see and I love it. Sarah is a rock star. That is a fact. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I want to answer that, that same question, Jeff, because uh, I think what was really cool for me was uh, for Moab 240, Mike, I don't know, Mike is coaching a lot of athletes. And what was really cool was in Moab, we were able to all meet up, Mike, uh, as well as like a couple of other guys who were also running the race. And so like I made some brand new friends. Uh, we all like got to kind of hang out as, as athletes. And, and like when you have like the coach, coach, athlete relationship with Mike like it's really like you, you it's friends like we are truly friends we like had a blast I think we got dinner or lunch uh, the day before a couple days before but what was really freaking awesome was that the the couple of guys that were also in the race we were all pretty close of kind of yo-yoing with one another another one of the runners I ran like majority of the race with uh, and just as we're, you know, like I remember one part of going up this felt like a never ending road that was just like nonstop up. At least that's how I remember it. And seeing him and Ben blasting the radio, driving by you know, like cheering us on, uh, you know, me and the other runners as we were all kind of somewhat close. And then at aid stations, you know, in the middle of the night, uh, Mike was there, you know, offering support, you know, there was a point where I was in a lot of pain, you know, he helped get Ben over to me and Ben freaking made me squeal with the body work that he did. Uh, you know, and so it was really just awesome to have Mike, be there not only for me but for the other athletes he's coaching after he's won the race you know he's back on the course and then if i recall correctly he was there for all of our finish you know so uh, i think that made it a very special moment for me and for you know my buddies now who are also athletes of mike so uh i, I want to thank you mike for you know making the effort and the time to come back out you know when i bet you know you would have loved to have gotten more sleep or rest or relaxing relaxing or whatever than you know coming out in the middle of the night and, and cheering us on but i could say we definitely appreciated it oh of course dude I uh we booked a couple of nice hotels just so we could do that. I like it. It's fun to be involved in all that. What's what's your uh as you're I don't know, as you're seeing your athletes come to the day stations and and their successes, like what's what's going through your mind um at this time when you're helping somebody like Hector out at these aid stations? Like there's got to be a lot of pride and and just overall and just great feeling that they're out there pushing themselves to the limit. Yeah, I'd say like I feel a, a bunch of different stuff. I mean, like as a coach, like you always have this fear, like, well, shoot, maybe, maybe I suck at what I do. <laughs> so like, like, you know, seeing them like progressing and getting further along, like for me, it's just like, oh yes, like it's working, they're doing well. And then at the same time too, seeing them get closer and closer, like for them, like it's super awesome to see them make that progression. And, you know, for some of them, it's their first 200 and 
seeing how close they're getting to that finish line, like gets me super excited for them. Uh, but like the biggest thing, um, and I'm not just like saying this to be cheesy or anything, but like, I, I don't want this to sound cocky. Like, I, I hope this does not sound cocky. I always tell people, the people who are finishing three, four, five days, they're, they're the strong ones in my mind. Um, for me, it's just like, it's, a, it's only two nights and then like I'm done and I'm able to go get in a hotel and sleep and catch up on my sleep. And it's like, like mentally, like if I was out there on the fourth night or the fifth day, like, I don't know how well I'd be doing. Like for me personally, like, I don't feel like what I know now, if I could mentally handle that, you know, going out there on that third night and that fourth night and just seeing like how tired they are and Moab, especially like there was a big store, a snowstorm that was coming and that night that Hector was talking about where we were going up the road and like blasting our music and stuff, that was like, sun had just gone down. So it's probably like 10 o'clock or so. And seeing them coming to each aid station and then leaving in my head, I'm just like, holy crap, like <laughs> I'm about to go and get my second full night of sleep in a warm hotel bed and they're going to go out and who knows yeah. when it's going to snow right now. So like, it's a lot of different feelings. Like, <laughs> like, like pure admiration that they're trucking through to the finish, even though it's night four. Fear for how cold and bad it's going to get for them mentally. Like just really hoping that they hang on and hold strong mentally. Like it's just, there's a lot of different feelings I feel, but like seeing them hit the finish line, like there's definitely one feeling and that's like joy and, and gratitude that they were able to pull it out and get to the finish. So it's, it's just really, it's funny. It's funny that you have that kind of take or not funny, but I, I see your point of view, but like my point of view would be when I'm out there and I think about, you know, the, the, the time that you're doing your, the, 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 the pace that you're holding to finish in the times that you're finishing where I'm like, how is he running this section? How is he jogging this section? How is he going up this mountain? Like there's trees everywhere. How is he moving as fast? Like that has got to be, it's painful for me to just walk it. So it's got to be even more painful for him to run up or run down or just to continuously knock those, you know, 12 minute mile pace to do what he does. And I'm just so, I, I've told, I believe I've told Mike this like personally, like I would love to just see a camera watching him the whole time to see how he's moving through some of these sections because seeing all well, seeing two of the three of the courses, because I didn't get a chance to see Tahoe because it, it uh, the, the fires got it canceled. But seeing the Bigfoot course in the Moab, it is tough. It is, it is as tough as you think it is. And, you know, it's technical. And Bigfoot is just so steep and trees and overgrown. And I'm just like in my head, like, how is he moving as fast as he is to, you know, finish in those times? And so I'm always baffled. Like I, I, I still can't wrap my head around how he does it, but uh, yeah. So it's cool that you see it. I, I did. I have heard people say like, who has it worse, the guy or girl in first or, you know, the person finishing last. Um, so, you know, I definitely think there's a debate, but I think it's got to be harder to be moving the way you move through those mountains. I think that's just a testament that 
all of us are so individual and we're just built for what we can handle because I definitely feel like the people who I just I think we all feel the same way about each other which is just really cool I guess so Mike you're you're involved with a really cool foundation I want to get into and and give a little um, airtime to it's racing for orphans with down syndrome or rods Um, could you give our listeners a little bit more like background of how you got involved with uh, with this foundation and what they do and and how it relates to uh, you being out on the out on in the races and how athletes are also getting involved with because there's also opportunities like Hector's part of the Rods Foundation as well. How's that? How's that all play in? Yeah, so I guess I'll hear him say what it is first before saying how I got involved. <clears throat> but um, there's a big problem in the world that a lot of people don't know about, and that's internationally specifically that when somebody has a child with down syndrome oftentimes they just abandon them because they don't want to have to deal with raising them Um, the reason it's not so common here and this is not any happier is we have the technology to tell if the child's going to have down syndrome before they have the child so unfortunately many times they're just aborted before they have that child Um, so Rod's focus is strictly on international children with Down syndrome, but basically right now that we know of, there's 491 children who have been abandoned that are in orphanages that need a family. And so what Rod's does, um, you know, one of the biggest hurdles that families have with adoption is the adoption fees, which could range around $40,000 to $50,000. And so Rod's basically, we have a team of about 700 athletes. We go out and we, we race, raise money, provide adoption grants for specific children, anywhere from 5,000 to 20,000, just to make that um, bridge a little bit easier to cross for families and basically like make it a carrot, like, Hey, here's $20,000 adopt this child and, and, and help them live a, a fulfilling life. So, so that's what we do. We raise funds for children with Down syndrome that need a family. And then the way I got involved, it's kind of cool how it actually happened, but it was a year ago. Exactly. Um, I, I interviewed with the founder of rods for a job at another company that he is high up at. Um, I was interviewing for a marketing manager position at a financial firm. And through that interview process, he, he told me like, I don't feel like this position's for you to be hundred percent honest, but I am looking for somebody to lead this nonprofit of mine. And I feel like you could be a good fit for that. And so he told me about it. The thing that kind of solidified it is, a few days after that interview, I was telling my sister about the interview and my sister actually adopted a little girl with Down syndrome three years prior to that. And so when I told her, I was like, hey, like I might work with this organization that helps like raise adoption grants for children with Down syndrome. She asked me the name of the organization and I told her and she was like, holy crap, they they gave me my final check that I needed to, to oh, bring wow. home. Yeah. And so she's That's like, cool. yeah. And she asked who I'm interviewing with. And I told her his name is Brady Murray. She's like, Oh my gosh. And she like pulled up her phone and showed me a picture. Like when she brought this girl back to Utah, they went and met Brady and got pictures with him and stuff. So her and my, her and the founder were good friends. So I, I told him that the next day. And I don't know if that like kind of solidified that he wanted to work with me or not. But, uh, so yeah, that was a year ago. And 
it's just been kind of fun. He's just kind of letting me run with it. Like we're changing the athlete model a lot. And a lot of that has been Hector's help as well. You know, versus like in the past, we would just create a, like we'd pick a child, tell all the athletes to fundraise for that same child until we hit um, like a goal for an adoption grant. Whereas now we're kind of like shifting it to like individual children. So like basically each athlete is encouraged to pick their own child to advocate and fundraise for. So like, you know, Hector and I, we picked the same child for the triple crown. His name's Brody. You know, all the athletes are encouraged to like put a picture of the child on their vest or their shirt and just like make them the focus of all of their efforts. And, you know, one, try to raise funds, but you know, right now we have quite a bit of funds available for these children, but we're just mostly trying to find families right now. There's not as many families stepping forward for some reason. So, but yeah, that, that's kind of what, what Rods is. It's, it's a fun organization to be a part of and it's fun seeing like Hector and a few other people I coach, they're getting involved with it. And um, a lot of people in the ultra running community that I'm friends with people that follow me that I don't even know. It's just been kind of fun to use my passion for ultra running to, to kind of bring mm-hmm. that over to rods and kind of move that purpose a little bit more forward. Yeah. What I think is cool. And I always say it, like, I love like testing limits, community, and then giving back or raising awareness for a good cause. So, you know, and I think uh, me and you have been able to do that and I've had other people reach out to me, um, and so my question to you is somebody interested in being a Rod's athlete, uh, how can they go about that process to, to, to join us and basically participate and raise the awareness or raise funds or join in on any of the events or, or be a part of the community? So yeah, they can reach out to me, but like if they just go to rods, R-O-D-S.org, there's a link on there that says like join team rods. And it's basically a sign up form that says who you are, your interest in the organization, how you found out about the organization, and then hit submit. And I don't know if a lot of athletes who have signed up that know you and I, Hector, know this, but like that form goes directly to me. Um, I'm the one that usually brings them in and like creates their profile on the page and stuff. So, so either just reaching out to me directly or going to rods.org and filling out that form. Yeah. We're just looking for a bunch of passionate people that, that um, can help find families for these children. Is there a limit to how many athletes you can have on the platform or is it just kind of one of those things that you'll just keep bringing on athletes to help out with this cause as much as you, as 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 much as they're willing to, you'll you'll bring them on. There's no limit to how many athletes you guys see. Is that correct? Yeah, there's not really a limit. Um, I that being said, though, like out of the 700 that we have right now, like there's a small handful that's still like actively engaged. So I'm definitely like trying to like build a stronger team right now. That's like got a lot more of a unified feel and stuff like that. So like I am trying to like build a new team while like maintaining the old team and like, you know, trying to like make sure they cross pollinate and the people that are still interested come over and stuff. But like in terms of people who are signing up right now, it's if you're interested in in raising awareness, then you know, sign up. We'd love to have you. We, we just ask that, that you just really recognize that you are doing this for a child that needs a family and vice versa, a family that needs a child. And so like, if you're going to come over, like be committed, like make this child your own, keep racing for them, keep trying to raise awareness for them until some family steps forward and commits to adopt them. And then, 
pick a new kid and do it all over again. So as long as you're going to be passionate about it, we'll, we'll take you and we, we'd love to have you. And is it um, from a family perspective, if somebody's, if a family's interested in adoption, do they just go, they just go onto the website and there's a, a area for them to click on and go through the process as well too? Yeah, there's an adoption grant form you can fill out. There's a contact page that has my email um, if you're just interested in inquiring about adoption and what the process looks like. But everything that they need is on rods.org, and that's where they can get started. And is it uh, is it only U.S. families that you guys are helping out, or is it North America? How does that work out from a family perspective? I mean, primarily it has been U.S. Okay. The best because who's expressed interest? Like we'll we'll work with anybody from any country. What we'll do is I want to make sure that that information gets out. So in the show notes, uh, I'll make sure to put the website there uh, so they can reach out to to the foundation to be you know if you're interested in being an athlete for rods or if you're interested if you got a family that's interested in adoption, we'll make sure to put all that information there um, as well. But uh, uh, Mike. I, I, thank you very much for for coming on and, and talking with with us today and, and sharing your story and and it's it's been fun listening to the conversation between you and Hector and how you guys look at your you know strategies and and the races and and stories between the two of you. So I, I appreciate you coming in and, and sharing those with us. Jeff, I got one last question for Mike. I know you you got the across the years coming, but what are the races challenges or FKTs that you can share that are on your radar for 2022? Yep. So um, first is Cocodona. I, I got to go back and get my finish there. Um, <clears throat> I'm actually, I booked an Airbnb out there for two weeks before, just because living in Northern Utah, it's hard to get some heat training in that time of year. So Cocodona, and then I'm like 95% sure I'm going to do bad water. I have my entry to that a few years ago when it canceled. And then the other thing, so I made an announcement about two months ago. I'm going to do the Appalachian Trail next year. Um, I'm going to have to make another announcement soon that I'm not going to do it next year. <laughs> um, basically... Like anybody that's seen my Colorado trail documentary and then just like in my conversation with you today, like I can't figure out sleep. And so that Colorado trail that I did, like, I feel like that was the threshold for being able to go that far on such little sleep without having issues. And then anything more than that, like it's, it starts to get a little bit more dangerous. So I got to figure out my sleep before doing a 45 day FKT attempt. So Instead of the Appalachian Trail next year, next October-ish, um, I'm going to go after the Arizona Trail FKT, which is 800 miles, and the current FKT is 12 days. So I feel like that's a good range to where I'm going to be forced to figure my sleep out. The cool thing about that, and I'm pretty sure that he'll be okay with me announcing this. I don't know if I've told you this, Hector, but uh, me and... No, this is news. I love it. Oh, okay. So me and Ben Light, we're going to do this thing. We're calling it the Arizona Trail FKT Shootout. So oh. the Arizona Trail goes from the top of the state to the bottom of the state. And, you know, the Colorado Trail has four different routes. I mean, and, and with those four different routes, there's four different FKTs. The Arizona Trail, though, um, there's just one FKT, like whether you start in the north or whether you start in the south. Like that's up to you, but the FKT is the same overall. So Ben and I, we're going to, we're going to draw straws to see 
who starts on what end race each other to the other side and each like try to get the overall FKT. So it's going to be a wow. fun, fun little thing with us. <laughs> <laughs> and when is, when is that happening? Probably like second week of October or so just to let the heat die down a little bit. Yeah. Wow. Well, if you're going to go, let's, let's, let's make it, let's make it a good competition here, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but the problem though is, is, is Ben is like my, my, my crew chief. So aside from <laughs> my wife, Ben is my crew chief and he's done, he does a lot of work for me on these things. So I'm going to have to figure out how to <clears throat> out Ben. <laughs> well, time to bust the Camry out again and, and figure yeah. it out, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, again, thanks, Mike. I really appreciate you sharing your story and, and for everything. And we'll, uh, I'll make sure again, I'll put all the show notes, uh, all the, all the special show notes as far as foundation information, social media, everything. I'll put that on the show notes for everybody to take a look at. So thanks again, man. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks guys. All right, that'll do it for another episode of the Trail Life Podcast. Special shout out to Hector Rodriguez for joining me as my first ever co-host uh, to the Trail Life Podcast. You better watch out, Hector. Do a good enough job. I might just ask you back for other conversations. Um, and also, as always, um, a huge shout out to my guest, uh, Mr. Mike McKnight. Uh, it was a pleasure having the opportunity to speak to him and, and hear his trail running journey and where he's at now and the strategy really like it's amazing to me like how the strategy aspect of those 200s work and it just adds a new layer on top of the trail running competition so it's amazing it's great to hear his story uh it's amazing to see what he's doing uh for uh, kids with Down syndrome and his foundation that he's working with um, all around. Such an amazing guy. Such a great conversation. Uh, thank you for Hector for introducing us and having the opportunity to jump in the conversation with us and, and, and have that. It was really fun listening to the back and forth with them and, and hearing stories about how you know, Hector met met Mike and you know how Mike interacts with his clients and stuff so always a really great story I was happy to be a part of it um, thank you uh, for everybody for listening in I hope you enjoyed the conversation and as always I will see you out on the trails real soon music for the trail life podcast was provided by the poor dirty astronauts with lyrics written by Matt Meyer